We'll begin this evening's talk with the Metta Sutta in English. This is a translation uh, from the Pali by the uh, monks at the Amravati Monastery in England. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. The title of this evening's talk is Why Metta? A question that certainly has some obvious answers as well as some answers that may not be so immediately obvious to us. And our response to why metta or why practice metta may certainly bring to light a variety of responses as the question emerges at times through the years of our practice. This evening I'd like to explore a few possibilities in response to this question, and in part through various stories, ancient stories as well as some contemporary stories. And beginning with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat. A forest adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during their rains retreat, and who were happy also to keep the monks' alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived there, became fearful of the monks' 
and also felt quite put out of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a few days. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create frightening sounds and frightening sights and to emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks leave their forest. Well, soon enough the monks became quite terrified, which broke their samadhi, broke their meditative concentration. And some of them even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to the Buddha, and they related their tale. And the Buddha responded this way. He said, my beloved monks, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that same forest again, saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta sutta, the teaching and the practice, they went back to that same forest and for a while continued to experience feelings of fear, feelings of anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Soon there were no more fearful sights, no more fearful sounds. And whereas the forest devas had previously been hostile towards the monks, their anger, their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect, welcome, and even reverence began to be the deva's experience, along with a sense of feeling connected, like with family. And even the inclination to provide safety arose in the devas. They wanted to protect the monks from other dangers that might be um, lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice peacefully. It's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing vipassana meditation again with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation peacefully, that they all became arahants. They all became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. This capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our life, throughout our practice. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that 
not only do all of the other divine abidings, the Brahma-viharas, the immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. But it's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind, that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. From and into the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. All of these qualities being an essential ground of the awakening process. The Buddha spoke a lot about patience. He often used the word forbearance as a description of patience. Forbearance in this sense isn't the attitude of putting up with it or toughing it out. Both of these attitudes coming out of a kind of hard-shelled stance. Patience Forbearance, in the Dhamma sense, is about the qualities of softness, acceptance, receptivity. This patience, these qualities, bring us to abide in our life, which of course includes our meditation practice, in a way that allows us to approach and open to, to be fully present with each moment, with a true openness, a respect, and with humility, honoring ourself, honoring others, honoring the moment, no matter what we're facing in our mind, heart, and body and no matter what's coming to us from the world around us. So to forbear in this sense. It's a very clear, strong place, metta. Metta practice is a powerful way of introducing the heart, the mind, to patience. A clear way towards cultivating the strength that's inherent in a patient, loving heart. And really coming to know in a deep experiential way that it's an advantage, that it's a great benefit in one's life. In truth, there's no real mindfulness without metta. And there's no true metta without mindfulness. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for love in contemporary Chinese is breath through the heart. My Burmese teacher, Saida Pandita, says that Most people think that everything begins and ends here, and he knocks himself on the head. And then he goes on. But I've been checking for a long, long time, he says, which he was, he's 80-something, and he was been a monk since he was a little boy. He says, I've been checking for a long, long time, and I found that everything begins and ends here, and he thumbs himself on his chest at his heart center. 
everything begins and ends here. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, of the mind. And using the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty, where from, where to. And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? One definition speaks of it as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relation to ourself, our body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment and the absence of ill will toward others. No aversion. Not comparing ourself in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-deprecation, no self-judgment, and no judgment, no deprecation of others the absence of ill will towards others. How often might we think that the person next to us or the person on the other side of the room, that their practice is much better than ours? Or maybe that it's very inferior to the way we're practicing. The felt judgment, they're better than me. I'm no good. I I'm, I'm, don't know how to do this. Or I'm great. No sleepiness. No movement. Just look at that person over there, nodding away, moving around. This isn't metta. We're creating a separation. Me, other. And the heart, the mind, is contracted. And maybe surprisingly, metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what we're identified with and attached to, either in a positive or in a negative way, as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, not only those who we're close to in our life, or those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us in some way. But the possibility of what is sometimes called an immeasurable impartiality, the capacity to be able to connect and care for any being, all beings. This is from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the heart enters into the mind, 
the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, an inner sense of patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in the very specific ways that you are, essentially cultivating and developing a concentrated clarity of attention, and maybe the mind opening and connecting to some degree of deepening states of concentration, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you working with the practice of metta specifically in relationship to its purifying aspects. In any case, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, anger, judgment, states of separation and disconnection. These strong energies that move through our mind, through our heart, and through our body begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and maybe even dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, the great Indian spiritual teacher, he taught through dialogue with his students. Someone once asked him, what can make me love? His answer was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. So, continuing with some reflections on this question that we began with, why metta? Something that was amazing and actually quite important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with, or connect with beings who act in ways we may not condone. Metta is acceptance on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over the other with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. 
It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, broken apart, long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been, or we could say is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. Someone once said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis and the impetus of our thoughts, our words, and our actions, if our thoughts, words, and actions spring from metta, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never know. I'd like to spend a few moments exploring some expectations of what we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a familiar feeling. We look for some felt sense, and of course our looking, our expectation, is based on something that we're familiar with. It's pretty hard, if not impossible, to look for something that we don't know to look for something that we may never have experienced, or to look for something that we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily always a particularly juicy feeling. The heart, the mind that's free from ill will, that's free from greed, fear, 
hatred, anger, in any given moment, is the mind, the heart of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of and are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar, that demonstrates this so clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and he was foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. The story takes place after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat, and the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at the Anathapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage, he sat down to one side and said to him, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. So the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, and he bowed to the Blessed One, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. And then the Blessed One called the other monk and said, called another monk, and said, Go, monk, and call Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. And the monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, Yes, friend. And then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda took the keys and went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today, the venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha after saluting him and sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, 
Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son. When he was 18 years old, you taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed to Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, is not present and may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth, whether people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it's not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing, Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and un unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand, clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like an untouchable youth, a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish 
jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accuse the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, and angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this reverend monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. May he too forgive me. Sariputta and the accusing monk then bowed three times to each other and reconciled. For many of us, there are points along the way of our practice where the specific direction of unconditional loving-kindness needs to be turned around towards ourself. And this isn't always easy to do or to accept once we begin to do it because of what might be strong conditioning that has told us maybe that we're unworthy or not lovable or that it's selfish to love ourselves. We may have taken on and unwittingly carried on and become identified with this attitude, this relationship to ourself as who we think we are over and over and over again. Taken on and taken in some karma that's maybe been moving through our family or through our culture for years, maybe for generations. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to knowing that we have a choice. This aspect of waking up sometimes comes through to us via some strong dukkha or may come from a sense of the unsatisfactory nature or maybe more accurately from some degree of understanding, insight that our predicament is unnecessary. We wake up to knowing that we don't have to be run by any particular karmic predicament. We have a choice to step out, to step off the karmic wheel, step out of the karmic predicament. At points along the way of our practice, we wake up to the fact that we can change our mind. And that, in fact, our mind is changing through our practice. Through my childhood, my mother many times told me, you can't love another unless you love yourself. In my early years, um, I didn't understand what this meant. Though somehow, as it does with children and their receiving wise teaching, it worked its way into my heart, into my mind. And through the many years of metta and vipassana practice, I've come to know much more clearly what this means. And that, in fact, it's very true. Our practice 
directs us towards being selfish, so to say, in the right way. Directing us towards connecting and accepting how it is in any given moment in our body and in our mind. Without this capacity to connect and accept, which is really the essence of metta, we'll never be able to see the true nature of things and instead be connecting with some imaginary experience, some idea of what is occurring, not what is actually happening. And again, it takes a tremendous honesty and humility to truly practice. And sometimes it takes a lot of meta-energy directed towards ourself to be able to open to, to be with, and to clearly see things as they are. Metta doesn't cover over anger, fear, jealousy, irritation. Metta changes our mind. Practice is about making the choice to transform our heart, to transform our mind. It actually opens the heart to make the choice to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, or to pretend anything, but to stay still, to be here, to be present. It's a choice to see and experience things just as they are, with a natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. The first year for two months, and then for one month, the second year. One of the students who stayed for the whole first uh, two months that first year was a man in his early 40s. He was a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw. And he had been diligently practicing Zen, Karate, and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to this uh, two-month Vipassana and Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered, angry father and uncle, and living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time through his childhood. With the fear still present in his adult life, but more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habit of thought, words, and actions of that ill temper, that same ill temper. And he described himself as a man of heavy emotions, which was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he'd begun to see himself much more clearly through his martial arts practice and through his interest in Buddhism and meditation. In being introduced to the metta teachings and practice, he found himself very interested and attracted. At some point during our two-month practice period, he decided to take on the phrase, may I love myself completely, just as I am in the present moment, which is one of the phrases that I offer when I teach metta. He decided to take this phrase on as his practice for the whole next year after he returned to Warsaw. Because of his Zen training, he created a kind of 
koan for himself, a koan being a question that can't be answered in any linear, logical way. So he created a koan with this phrase by changing one word of the phrase. Instead of may I, he said, can I? Can I love myself completely just as I am in this present moment? He silently said this koan over and over again during his sitting practice, in situations at work with his employees, at home with his family. Whenever he felt angry, enraged, and he said that very often he even remembered to stop, to be still for a few seconds and silently repeat the koan, even in the midst of anger. And he said more often, as the year went on, he remembered the practice just as the feelings of anger began to arise, which he found seemed to dissolve the anger very quickly. The next year when he came back to the one-month retreat in Poland to sit with me again, there had been an enormous transformation in this man. Our human heart is naturally, intuitively, loving and caring. So from this perspective, our practice isn't about working to get, about working to attain something, but rather it's about allowing the mind, the heart, through our practice to be be it metta, be it vipassana practice, allowing our heart to be loving-kindness itself. So from this perspective, we can turn right around and face awareness itself and ask, who loves? Who loves? There is metta. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. It belongs to no one. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar. And it's inexhaustible. As we persevere with our practice, there's a deepening self-confidence self-respect, and patience. A gentle yet powerful strength and growing more pervasive selflessness that begins to manifest and begins to mature. Our capacity to meet the myriad facets of life and the vicissitudes of life face on with sensitivity and deeper wisdom expands. In closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 at the Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters and her mother in a three-bedroom house at Pine Ridge. Even today, people talk about what a strict mother Chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were structured and chaperoned, unsupervised wanderings, and later on cruising around in cars were completely out. In an interview when she was a teenager, Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to 
come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Sue Ann's mother, Chick Big Crow, was strongly anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick belonged for many years to a small but very adamant group, a minority group that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on a New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann was the one that called the ambulance and called the police and then cared for her godmother until the grown-ups arrived. And maybe because of this incident, Sue Ann also became as opposed to drugs and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and actually made a video urging her message in a very stern and kind of wooden tone. And as a high school student, she traveled to various distant cities for conventions of like-minded teenagers. Raul Bradford, who was a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach and also a friend of her family's, was once asked uh, whether Sue Ann's public advocacy of this issue wasn't risky, given the predominance of alcohol in the life of the reservation. And Raul said, you have to understand, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me. It dawned on me that if a 16-year-old girl could have the guts to say these things, then maybe us adults should pay attention too. I haven't had a drink since the day she died. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time, they all, they did them all. Cross-country, running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. And so she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. And her mother and her sisters, of course, got very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Sue Ann tended to get into foul trouble in basketball games, as the referees rule very strictly in tournament games. And Sue Ann was used to a very headlong style of play. In the district playoff against a team from Red Cloud, Sue Ann scored 31 points. Some people who live in cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. In their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When, times, when teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, a question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and the fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally, at away games, their kids will be insulted, and their fans won't feel welcome, and the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in games between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and a distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman. She was 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the 
Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, kind of a woo-woo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run on the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, and shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, the home team would do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway, leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be for some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. And Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. And Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and then suddenly stopped when she got to center court. And her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Coach Zamiga, who was at the rear of the line, didn't know why they'd stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances she'd completed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle doing the shawl dance using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. So Anne dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and very fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up, up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball right through the hoop. And the fans began to cheer very loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. There's a fullness of energy 
and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. Metta develops straightforwardness and clarifies our ability to express what we know to be true without fear, anger, without hesitation. There's a great difference between saying something or acting from a place of clear and complete intuitive understanding based on our inner knowledge of its truth, rather than our words or actions coming out in a harsh way from a place of fear, anger, or pride. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. And he said that when he himself spoke, It was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The Buddha spoke about the fact that for seven years he cultivated thoughts of loving kindness. He said that having cultivating a heart full of loving-kindness. For seven years, he didn't return to this world, meaning he didn't return to an inner world based in clinging and aversion. And so closing the talk with an instruction from the Buddha. It is in this way we must train ourselves, by liberation of the self, through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.